want to welcome you to Southwinds as we this morning begin our, our brand new summer series, Tell Me a Story. And this summer we are together going to be exploring uh, a number of fascinating stories from the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is really full of stories that fascinate and challenge and intrigue us. Stories that really have shaped the entire world for thousands of years. Stories about a snake and an apple and stories about a flood and an ark. Stories about a young boy and a giant and some smooth stones. Stories about a bush that won't burn up. Stories about family intrigue and temptation and heroic rescue. Today, we're going to look at a story that you may not have looked at recently. It's the story we find in the book of Esther. And you're going to discover that the book of Esther is actually one of the most unusual and most controversial books in the Bible. Esther is controversial, first of all, because God's name does not show up anywhere in the whole book. And there are no miracles. There are no prophets declaring God's word. There's actually not one prayer breathed anywhere in Esther. And sum it up, Esther doesn't seem like a very spiritual book. And the result of this through history is that Esther has often been devalued and has sometimes been ignored. For example, if you go to the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, uh, you would discover that Esther is the one book from the entire Old Testament that's not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Over the last couple thousands of years of the Christian era, uh, many famous commentators have just bypassed Esther in their writings. Some of them have even advocated removing Esther from the Bible. Uh, many pastors today never even preach from this book. In fact, this is only the second time I have in over 30 plus years of ministry. And if all of that wasn't strange enough, the Veggie Tale version of Esther is the only story in which Bob the Tomato does not ever appear. Just think about it, okay? Well, I am grateful that God has put Esther in his word because I believe that Esther has some very important lessons to teach us, and the fact that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in this book is actually part of the way God wants to teach us, as I hope to, to show you. Uh, we're going to focus in on a specific moment in Esther's life that speaks to our lives today. Uh, but to get there, I need to first walk you through the story. Esther's story begins around 483 B.C. She's part of a large Jewish community that has remained in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, where God had sent his people into exile over 100 years earlier because they would not obey God. Now, at this point, many of the Jews have already gone home because in 536 B.C., Cyrus had issued an edict permitting the Jews to leave, to go back to their homeland, to rebuild the temple. And a large group did that. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt their land under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, these books that come right before Ezra in the Bible. But there were a lot of Jewish people who remained in Persia. And the Jews who had gone to Israel sometimes looked down on them because they assumed that these Persian Jews were living in disobedience since they had not returned to the promised land when God gave them the opportunity. Esther is one of those who remained. And she is an orphan. She is being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. The story of Esther begins with a king named Xerxes doing 
uh, what kings do best, and that is throwing a party for himself. This is how it starts, Esther 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So Xerxes throws a party, a celebration, six months long. It's for himself, and then the real party begins, and this is a a week-long banquet. Verse 8 describes this party. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. In other words, the king wanted everyone to drink a lot. Verse 10 says, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, and one translation says King Xerxes was feeling good, okay? (laughs) And in Hebrew, this means that he was lit, he was hammered, he was stone-cold plastered, okay? Uh, When he was feeling good, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now you might be wondering why Vashti would not uh, respond to this request. Well, I think part of the answer could be found um, in what the ancient Jewish scholars writing in the Talmud tell us. They believe that Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to appear wearing only her royal crown. In other words, he wanted her to parade naked in front of a few thousand of his drunken buddies. And if this is so, not surprisingly, Vashti is not excited about this and she refuses. But this embarrasses the king publicly and he starts sulking. His advisors come to him and say, oh, king, this is serious. you got to do something about this. And not just for your sake, oh, king, but for the sake of all men everywhere. In fact, this might be one of my favorite verses in Esther, verse 18. That these people say, if you don't do something, this very day the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. O king, we are just telling you, if we command our wives to come out naked in front of our drunk buddies and they won't do it, what will this kingdom come to? Lawlessness, I tell you. Anarchy. Well, Queen Vashti gets kicked to the curb. But now Xerxes needs a new queen. And so his attendants come up with a brilliant idea. Chapter 2. Then the king's personal attendants propose, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, 
And he followed it. And so the king, he holds this like nationwide contest, oddly similar to The Bachelor. And <laughs> here's, here's how it worked. Uh, contestants were put into the king's harem and they received all these beauty treatments for an entire year. And then the king would try them out. Uh, each night, one of them would appear before him and I don't know, answer some questions. Maybe, I guess, do some sort of talent or something. And then the king that night would sleep with them. And then he would decide after it was all over which one was his favorite. Now that probably sounds to you like a contest that a godly person would not enter. But I need to be clear here. I'm not really sure Esther had much choice in the matter. Chapter 2, verse 8 makes it clear that she was chosen to be in this contest, which means she probably couldn't refuse. And it's probably more accurate to think of Esther as something of a sex slave, a victim of a cruel an exploitative man who had all power. Adding to the moral strangeness of this story, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2 says that she concealed the fact that she was Jewish, which also meant that she was silent about her belief in God. And then on top of that, we remember that Esther, Mordecai, both are still in Persia several generations after King Cyrus given permission for the Jews to return home. This all just adds to this growing picture of kind of moral discomfort as we read this story. Put it all together, it's a messy situation. Let's get back to the story. Good news is Esther wins the contest, and Esther 2.7 explains why. It says the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. These are not words you actually find too often in the Bible because really it's saying Esther had a gorgeous face and a hot body. Uh, I don't really know anyone else described like this anywhere in the Bible. And one more detail before we get to chapter 3. The author tells us about a man named Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, who essentially adopts her when her parents die. And he works near the palace and he hears about a plot to kill the king. He stops that plot, saves the king's life, but somehow the king never really finds out. Chapter 3, verse 1 is where it really starts to get interesting. Enter Haman, the villain. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, if you read the Bible, we know that he's a villain because he's an Agagite, and these are people who are God's sworn enemies, people that God has promised he is going to destroy. By the way, fun fact, I learned a number of years ago from my Jewish cousins, uh, when Jewish people, even to this day, celebrate the Feast of Purim every year, which is coming out of this story of Esther, and they retell this story every time that they say the name Haman, all the children respond by booing and hissing. <laughs> Sounds kind of fun. You want to try it? So... Let's give it a go here. If you've ever wanted to boo or hiss me when I'm up here, you got your chance. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. You guys kind of like that, don't you? <laughs> Son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. 
Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Now, the, the fact that Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, uh, you, don't, you don't have to do it anymore, okay? This makes Haman so angry that... Uh, <laughs> you really don't have to do it anymore, okay? that he finds out Mordecai is a Jew and decides, I'm going to hatch a plan not only to kill Mordecai, but I'm going to kill all of the Jews. And so he presents his plan to Xerxes, and Xerxes evidently has kind of a hands-off approach to running the kingdom. He doesn't really seem, if you read it, you'll see, to pay any attention to what Haman is asking because he's planning his next six-month party, maybe, or maybe, maybe Xerxes is on Twitter, you know, calling people who disagree with him nasty names or something. I don't know. In chapter 4, Mordecai is hanging out around the palace, and he hears about this plot to kill the Jews. And so he gets an urgent message to Esther, the queen, and tells her, you've got to do something about this. In 4.11, Esther sends a message back saying, basically, Cousin Mordecai, I know it's bad, but what can I do? You remember how Xerxes responds to women disagreeing with him in public? I mean, he vanished vastly just for refusing to strut her stuff naked in front of his drunken buddies. I mean, imagine what he would do if I, a woman, had the audacity to suggest that he wasn't governing his kingdom properly. I mean, he'd have me killed. And of course, we know from other places in the Bible that Persian law tells us that anyone who comes before the king uninvited could be killed. And so for this little Jewish girl to appear before Xerxes, who's basically the poster child for male chauvinism, to tell him that he doesn't know what he's doing with his running his government, I mean, that's like a death wish. And Mordecai's response to Esther is timeless, and our main text actually for today, chapter 4, verses 12 and following. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. In other words, your safety is an illusion. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise in another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai is saying the question is not whether God will accomplish his purposes and save his people. The question, Esther, is whether or not you will be saved. And then he speaks these famous words, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, Esther hadn't lived a privileged life. She didn't even really start out that well in her walk of faith, but now she's facing a defining moment. And she responds with one of the great statements anywhere in the Bible. Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So in chapter 5, Esther enters the king's court on the appointed day. And the king, who's evidently still taken by her beauty raises his scepter, which was a symbol that he accepted her. He says, my queen, what do you need from me? 
And she says, I'd really like for you to come to a banquet that I've prepared and bring your friend Haman. The king agrees. And the next night, he and the prime minister come to dinner. At this first banquet, we don't know why, Esther doesn't say anything about Haman's genocidal plan. Instead, she just invites the two of them to come to another banquet the next night, maybe because she knows how much the king likes to party. Meanwhile, Haman goes home from this first banquet, and he's really happy because of all the people in all the kingdom, the queen especially, specifically requested him. But as he's going home, he passes through the city gate, and when he does, he sees Mordecai standing up while everyone else is bowing down. And this totally kills Haman's buzz, and he decides he can't wait not only to kill Mordecai, but also to kill the rest of the Jews. And it needs to happen starting tomorrow. And so he gets home and he orders that a gallows be built 75 feet high that very night. And he plans that night to walk in to see the king the next morning for permission to hang Mordecai. That brings us to chapter 6. It just so happens, we are told, that on the very same night... The king can't sleep. And so he says to one of his attendants, go get a book to read to me. And this guy goes to the library and he randomly picks out a book. And this book just so happens to be a book that recounts the story of how Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king says, this is remarkable. I mean, how exactly did we reward this fellow Mordecai? And the servant says, well, we didn't. And so the king decides that he's going to do this first thing in the morning. And so as soon as the sun rises, the king gets to the office. Guess who is the first person to walk into the room? It's Haman who has come to the king to ask for permission to hang Mordecai. But before he can say anything, the king says, Hey, man. (laughs) Been waiting all week for that. I hear that booing. You know how I tell you you're my favorite service? Changed my mind. Um, He says, Haman, I've got a question for you. What should the king do for the man that the king delights to honor? Now, of course, Haman, in his pride, thinks he's talking about me. And so he says, put a royal robe on him that the king has worn and let him ride a horse that the king has ridden on and let a high-ranking government official parade that man through the city streets, calling out to everyone, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And Haman is told by the king, that's a brilliant idea. So the guy that I want to honor is Mordecai, and you're just the person to do that which is all really, really awesome and really, really funny if you stop to think about it. And so after he leads Mordecai through the city, Haman is even madder, and he kicks his plan to kill all the Jews into overdrive. But that night, he needs to go to Esther's second banquet, and this time Esther tells the king all about the plot against her people, and she then reveals that she too is a Jew. The king says to her, who might conceive such a plot against you? And Esther, I think, must have kind of done like that or pointed across the table at Haman, who has his mouth full of mutton, and says, that's the man right there. 
And now it's Xerxes' turn to be angry, and he storms out of the room in a rage. And at this point, Haman knows he's in big trouble, and he falls at the feet of Esther, clinging to her her royal robes, you know, pleading for his life. And we don't know exactly what this happened, but it's almost like he kind of fell on her in some way. And guess who happens to walk back into the room at just this moment? King Xerxes. And he says, what? Are you now going to try to rape my wife also? And he orders Haman to be hung on the next available gallows, which just so happens to be the gallows that Haman had constructed the night before for Mordecai. And so it is that Esther, who got a really rough start in life, saves the Jewish people. And her courage saved not only their lives, but her courage actually when you think about it, continues to transform our lives because a few generations after her, one of her descendants, one of the descendants of the people that Esther saved that night would be visited by an angel and told that she was pregnant with the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus came into the world and Jesus died for our sins. And now we sit here worshiping him today. I believe Esther's story has two broad purposes in the Bible. First, it shows us the remarkable way that God brought Jesus into the world. Second, it shows us the way that God wants to use you for his global purposes. Two things. And and I wanted to use the rest of our time to talk about what this story says to us, what this story is saying, particularly about that second big purpose. I want us to look at some life lessons that we can learn from Esther. And I think it's an important thing for us to do as we launch this series and as we launch into the the summer season because there's a real sense in which our church is at some real crossroads, some real defining moments in the months ahead. Maybe for some of you individually that's true as well. Let me show you four things that Esther's story teaches us. Here's the first. You can write this down in your notes. Realize that God can use anyone, including you. Now, we get a couple of examples of this in the persons of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is the kind of person that you would think God would use because he's a good man, a good person. He's a person of integrity. He's lived a pretty upright life. He doesn't seem ever really to have strayed from following God in major ways. And so we're not surprised that God uses his character and courage to make a difference. But then you have Esther. And Esther, she can represent people that you might not think God could ever really use. Esther suffered major loss when her parents died. And she didn't have a good start to her life. Esther likely either compromised willfully to get in the palace, or once she was there, she made choices that caused her shame and regret. Maybe like Esther, you've been the victim of someone who manipulated you. Maybe you've even been the victim of some assault of some kind. Or maybe you're someone who kind of looks back at your life and you see that you have not always acted with integrity, acted with courage, acted with faith when you should have. Whoever you are, this book shows you God can use you. God can use anyone. I mean, Esther, she's the one God uses to preserve the messianic line. Why would that be the case? Why? Well, why choose an orphan girl who's lived a compromised life? Why choose someone who's 
a victim who's vulnerable in every way. And I think it has to be to show us that God brings his salvation into the world through unlikely, weak instruments, people who just make themselves available. See, of all the people in Israel, God chooses to bring salvation into the world through a young orphan with a checkered past. In other words, it doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your ability is. All that matters is your availability. God has placed many of you in a specific place, and you have some specific opportunities, and God wants you to use those for the purposes of his kingdom. Amen? I want you to look around your life, think about it, and, and realize that in a very real sense, you are in a palace of some sort. And by that, I mean a place where you have a chance to influence and maybe even literally save the lives of others. I'm going to show you more about what I mean about that in a few moments. But maybe from that place right now, you look back at your life with a lot of regrets. Maybe you've been a victim. Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes. Maybe this, maybe that, but you are here now and it is time, I want to tell you today, to stop looking backward. It is time to start looking forward because God wants to start something new with you. You see, Esther didn't get off to the best start, but in her defining moment, she said yes and God used her to change the course of history and maybe that's where some of you are. See, Esther reminds us that it's never too late to begin the journey of faith because salvation is about new beginnings and God is always ready to start a new beginning with you. So stop looking back. Yes, you may have been mistreated. Yes, you may have made some mistakes. But God wants to use you and God can use you and God is ready to start something new in your life. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Esther's story tells us that God is always working in your life, whether you see it or not. Again, we have this situation that God's name doesn't appear in this book. Where is it? I mean, it's not there, right? We don't see God's name a single time, but we see God's fingerprints all over this book. I mean, just think about all the so-called coincidences that led Esther to be in this position. Queen Vashti just so happens to upset the king, and he just so happens to come up with a contest to replace her that Esther just so happened has been perfectly designed to win. And Esther just so happens to be Mordecai's cousin who just so happens to hear about a plot to kill the king. And it just so happens for some reason, we don't know why, he isn't honored when he saves the king's life, but his act of heroism just so happens to get written down in a book. And then it just so happens that the night before Mordecai is to be hanged, the king can't sleep. Hmm. And it just so happens that the guy who gets up to read a bedtime story for the king, out of all the books that he could have pulled off of the shelf, it just so happens that he pulls out the one book that tells the story of how Mordecai saved the king's life. And it just so happens that when the king decides that they need to honor Mordecai first thing in the morning, the first one to walk in the room is Haman. And it just so happens that at the banquet where Esther unveils Haman's evil plan, the king just so happens to return to the room at the moment that it looks worse for Haman, like he's trying to molest the queen. And it just so happens that when the king orders Haman to be hanged, there are some gallows available. 
And those gallows that are available are the ones that Haman built the day before to hang Mordecai. It's like David Platt says, folks, you cannot write a script any better than this. Do you realize what the book of Esther is teaching you about history and about your life? God has the whole system rigged. God is sovereignly working and weaving the stories of his people together for his redemptive plan, and that includes your story. You have a divinely appointed role in the kingdom, and you have been sovereignly shaped to fulfill that role, and you will never really feel like you found your purpose in life until you do. I mean, just think about the palace, again, as your place of opportunity. Do you understand that there are people that God has put in your life that he intends for you to share Christ with. It is why you are where you are. You ever ask yourself, why in the world do I live on this street with those people next to me? Anybody ever ask that question? Maybe God has put you there for them to tell them about him. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I work in the company I work for, in the building that I work in, in the cubicle that I've been placed in? Why, if I'm a student, am I in this particular classroom with these particular students and teachers? God has put us in places of influence for his purposes. There are platforms that he has given you, places from which you can influence and bless and serve other people. You have abilities God's given you for his purposes. You have a profession God has allowed you to gain experience and skill in that God wants you to use. You have passions in your life, things that really burn in your heart, and he wants you to use those. You've been given financial resources for just such a time as this to enable our church as we share and work together to reach Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop and through our giving out to the world. You see, God doesn't just call us because we're able or because we have perfect histories. God just wants us to make ourselves available to him. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Southwinds, we are not the most impressive people in the world. We are not the richest, but we are here. And we are at this moment in history, and God has put us here. God has sovereignly placed us in this place at this moment, and God has rigged the system for bringing the Great Commission to completion through us in this region. See, all that God needs to reach our region, he has already put in our hands. He just wants our availability. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And the real question that you face, like Esther, is have you said yes to that? Have you made yourself available? By the way, there may be some of you here this morning and you're kind of looking on at this and listening to this from the outside because the truth is you don't really know God in a personal way in your life. And maybe you are here today because you need to realize that God brought you here today in pursuit of you. God wants to start a relationship with you. 
I mean, sometimes when I'm preaching, I look around and I see people. And I don't know who they are. And I find myself wondering what their story is and why are they here today and what's going on in their life. And for some of you, I know that God has been speaking to your heart. God has put questions in your mind. And, and then God put someone in your life maybe to invite you. And maybe they invited you and first you said no, but then you said yes. And maybe that's why you're here today. You need to understand that all of that is from God. All of these questions that you have are from God. The pain that's in your life, God is working with that and using that. That invitation you received, it's from God. Here's the bottom line, friend. God is pursuing you and God is trying to get your attention. You are here today for such a time as this to meet the Savior. Will you respond and say yes? Here's the third life lesson. God calls you to risk your life for the kingdom. See, Esther teaches us with her story that you can't hold on to life, so you might as well risk it for the kingdom. I mean, it's understandable. Uh, We get it when Esther hesitates after Mordecai asks her to go before the king. She knows that she could die. But I want you to pay attention to how Mordecai responds He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai is saying, Esther, your safety is an illusion. We're all going to die. It's kind of an interesting little thing. This word perish, which is the Hebrew word abide, it occurs in Esther more than the first five books of the Bible combined. It's almost like this book is reminding us that death and danger, they're always nearby. I mean, what is certain, Mordecai tells her, is this. God will accomplish his purposes. Esther, he says, you might die either way. So you might as well go out doing what's right. I think Esther's story in the same way says to you and to me that our safety is a myth. I mean, any moment, do you understand this? You could get a call from your doctor that changes your life forever. You could walk into work tomorrow and you could lose your job. I mean, safety is an illusion And so we might as well bet our life on what we know is going to last. And Mordecai says, God is going to deliver his people. I know it's going to happen some way. And so he challenges Esther to be a part of that. And this reminds me of these famous words spoken by Jim Elliott, who was martyred as a missionary in 1956, only 28 years old. This is what he said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what you cannot keep is your life. You cannot guarantee that you will be alive tomorrow. What you cannot lose is whatever you have staked in God's eternal kingdom. And so we are being told, bet your life, risk your life on that. Plan your life, friend, for the one moment we all know will happen. And that is this, one day you will die and you will stand before a holy God. You know, if you read the Bible all the way to the end, one thing that is clear is this, God wins. God wins. And the only question, therefore, is whether or not we will be a part of this. 
kind of an interesting thing to contemplate from our vantage point uh, in the 21st century on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. Do you understand that we have an even greater assurance of how this will all turn out than Esther did? I mean, here's how. Think about it. We see in Esther's story a shadow of our coming Savior. Esther risked her spot in the palace to intercede for the people of God. But this prefigures Jesus who centuries later would not only risk the ultimate palace, but he would lose it. He would not only risk his life, he would actually sacrifice his life in order to save his people. And he today still stands before the throne of God interceding for us. You see, Jesus' resurrection reassures us that God will win and that God will one day overturn all the evil plans of all the world's Hamans for good. One day God will rewrite, overwrite all the enemy's schemes with victory. God is in control. God has it all in his hands. God is working all things together sovereignly for the completion of his purposes, the Great Commission. And so why not bet your life on the one thing you know is certain. Sometimes uh, we read stories like Esther's and we think that these stories are uh, these nice little stories with moral points about how we should live. And there's some truth in that, but that's not the main point. The main point is that God, our God, is in control of history. The real questions of Esther for us today are who do you think the real king is and who are you bowing to and who are you serving with your life? See, that's why Esther matters so much for us today. You know, this same God that we see uh, behind the scenes in Esther is the God that assures me one day that all peoples and all tribes and all tongues, all nations will bow before him and worship him. That's Revelation 5. That's how the story ends. And one of the things that means for you and me is anything we risk, anything we sacrifice toward that end will not be wasted. You know, there are many ways that we could talk about that God calls us to risk our lives for his kingdom. Uh, Maybe the most prominent way would be the gospel. God calls you to be willing to have courage and willing to, to take risks to tell people about the salvation that you have received through his son, Jesus Christ. Are you willing to take a risk to let someone else know what you know? Another way that God calls us to trust him and risk our lives would be through generosity. We actually are today at kind of a a pivotal point uh, in our church's history. I don't know if you realize this or not, but today is actually day one of year three of our Next Gen Spiritual Initiative. We've completed two years of this journey. We're starting on year three. Two years ago, if you were here, then you know that many, many people made a lot of sacrifices as a church so that we could impact the next generation. And by the way, wasn't it awesome to drive up to the campus this morning and see some walls going up on the building? Amen? So I want to update you a little bit on where we are, and I've got a graphic to show you. Um, Together two years ago, we as a church family uh, make commitments uh, totaling $2.579 million and some change. And two years into this process, we have received $1.624,828.93. Somebody ought to give seven cents with on whatever else they give today so we can kind of even that thing out. 
And uh, what this means in the big picture is that we are two-thirds into our journey, and we have given 63% of what we have committed. So we're, we're a little bit behind on that. But what it means more than that is that we need to continue this race. Um, some of you right now may need some encouragement to stay the course because some of us right now may be a little bit weary. We may be tempted to give up. And I want to encourage you to stay in the race and to finish strong and to remain faithful, especially as we move through uh, the summer season. I also would like to commend some of us, and you know who you are, who have been faithful above and beyond. We have a number of people in our church family who've already fulfilled our commitments. And from that group, there are some people in that group who've continued to give, giving above and beyond what they initially committed. I want to say thank you to you. I want to say thank you to everybody who has given and made sacrifices. I want to encourage us to keep in the race, keep going, main strong. Just a couple days ago on Friday, uh, I got a reminder of why we do all this. Uh, Pastor Chris Thielen uh, and his team of very faithful leaders returned from kids camp. And there was good news and bad news. The bad news was um, at least seven of the kids that were there got the flu. And everything you think of when you hear that word, it happened, okay? It was a very difficult time for a number of people. A number of parents had to make their way up the mountain and some kids were brought home early. Lots of things went on. That's the bad news. The good news is eight of our children made professions of faith at camp this week. Eight. What is our purpose? Why do we do what we do? Why do we give? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we share the gospel? We do this to see lives change today and out into the next generation. Amen? Finally, number four, God calls you to respond to urgent needs that he places before you. See, Esther stood literally at a life and death moment, a crossroads for her people. People's lives were on the line. And we may not think that's ever true for us, but it often really is. And maybe you need to consider the needs God is placing before you. All around us, every day, there are literal life and death moments going on. For example, do you know that on average, around 2,700 babies will be aborted in our country tomorrow, one day? Do you know that on average, every day around our world, about 25,000 children die from starvation or from a preventable disease? Do you understand that around our entire world today, almost 46 million people are slaves more than at any other time in human history? But most tragically, do you know that there are millions of people all around us, all around us that will spend an eternity in hell? Do you know that there are 3.1 billion people around the world who do not have a gospel witness? Urgent needs. And by the way, I want to make sure you don't lose the impact of that last one. There are a lot of people today who are moved by the needs of the world and their hearts ache for global suffering. And that is so important. But you need to be reminded today, we do, that the, the need of the gospel is the greatest need of all because the greatest suffering is eternal suffering. You know, for some of you, your heart breaks for those who hunger. But be reminded 
that the greatest hunger is for the bread of life. For some of us, our hearts yearn to see people freed from slavery, but the greatest slavery is the slavery to sin. See, of all the things that we give our lives to, the gospel is the most important. And I'm not saying that we should ignore the other things. They should go together. When we preach peace and salvation to someone's souls, we should also be doing everything we can to bring peace and health and prosperity to someone's body. It is just that we must never forget that the gospel is paramount. The gospel is the world's greatest need. See, Esther's life shows us these issues are of life and death importance. And just like Esther could not ignore those life and death realities, neither can we. You know, Esther's story in the Bible is a great story, but it also provides for us a picture of our lives reminding us that we live in moments like Esther did, divinely orchestrated moments, sometimes life and death moments, that we have all been placed where we live for such a time as this. Have you ever really asked yourself that question, why am I here? Why has God put me where I live, where I work, in this church? Do you know what you're for such a time as this is. You know, we're in a place in our church's life where we see some of their dramatic, defining moments ahead of us. And it is imperative for us to keep in mind as we walk into the future and as God gives us opportunities to share the gospel, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to serve people all around us, to help connect them to Jesus Christ, to give of our resources with generosity, It is so important for us today as a church that we live in this for such a time as this moment. I think God led me to this story in part because it's the beginning of summer. And summer is often a time of escape where we we get away from life's normal responsibilities and that's good and I'm gonna get to do some of that myself. But I wanna say to you, while we rest and while we recharge, Let's not forget the urgent needs that God brings before us. Let's stay faithful to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Let's stay faithful in our generosity to support the work that God is doing here. Let's stay faithful to meet the specific needs that God brings across our paths each and every day. You see, every one of us is here for a moment. God's given us that moment, whatever it is, for such a time as this. And God's in control. God is at work. The question is, will we risk our lives for the kingdom? Will we do what God tells us to do, knowing that whatever we risk, his reward in the end for us will be greater? God can use anyone, and that includes you. Will you be available to what he's called you to do? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, this day for your word which stirs us, your word which challenges us, your word, Father, that sometimes uh, brings rebuke to our lives. Lord, help us to examine carefully the time you have placed each one of us in and to see those opportunities you're putting in front of us. 
and help us to be faithful to obey whatever you want us to do. Lord, we also pray for those who may be here who have not met you yet and ask that you would open their eyes, that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith that they may see the beauty of your son Jesus and see what he has done for us, dying on the cross for our sins, offering us forgiveness. Lord, have your way with us today. Do your work in us and through us. We pray these things all now in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people together say,